as today we get um, a healthy dose of realism. Healthy dose of realism. If you've been following our, our series so far, you might have been left thinking, this is just too good to be true. Let me remind you of some of the things we've seen so far. Chapter 1, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are, doves. Oh, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming, and our bed is verdant. Chapter 2, my beloved is mine, and I am his. Chapter 3, I held him and would not let go. Chapter 4, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. And so if you've been you know, following us along with this series, if you're single here, you might well be thinking, oh my goodness, I can't wait to find someone like this for myself and experience some of this relational paradise for myself and be head over heels in love and take my breath away and I'll always love you, my heart will go on, love is all around you and any other idealistic love song you can name and this can be mine for real. And if you are married, perhaps you are thinking to yourself, where did we go wrong? Which is why this realistic chapter of the Song of Songs is so helpful and so important for us as we see this loss of intimacy and an argument and some tit for tat and some fear and some confusion and this sort of nightmare scenario unfolds before us. Because this chapter will show us, not just as we've been seeing, the ups of marriage, but the downs of marriage too. And the tiffs, and the selfishness, and the conflicts that will certainly arise. And how do you deal with them? Here then is a healthy dose of realism. For us all, this is not just for married relationships, this is for every relationship, and most importantly of all, this is about our relationship with God. Two things we're going to see. First, a loss of intimacy. Secondly, a return to intimacy. First then in verses 2 to 9 of chapter 5, a loss of intimacy. And as we go through these verses, just try and work out where did it start to go wrong. Verse 2, I slept, but my heart was awake. So we need to see that this is a dream. She's sleeping. Her subconscious is awake. It's why we seem to flit suddenly from one scene to another, wonder how we've got here and what is, what's, what's happening. Dream therapists would have, a, would have a field day here. But in this dream, verse 2, it continues. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. Now you might think to yourself, why is the husband coming home so late at night? This knocking on the door, is it a literal door? Is it her private door? He's looking for intimacy, open to me. We recognize his words, we've heard them before, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. But is this the right time, given it's already so late? Verse 3, I've taken off my robe, must I put it on again? I've washed my feet, must I soil them again? She's upset, she's grumpy, I'm already in bed. Was it date night? Was she waiting up for him for hours? Has the food gone cold? Has the candles burnt out? We don't know. We're not told. What we do know is she is not happy. And she wants him to know she is not happy. Must I get out of bed again? Verse 4. My beloved, 
thrust his hand through the latch opening. He is trying to reach out to her. My heart began to pound for him. She does want him, really. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh on the handles of the bowl. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his at this departure. Oh no, it has all gone wrong. Perhaps the husband took her at his word, took her at her word, even though she was always going to let him in. Perhaps he thought he would join in the tit for tat. Well, if you're going to punish me like this and leave me outside, I'm going to punish you too. I'm going to go off elsewhere. Either way, he is gone. And there is this loss of intimacy. And in verse 6, she looks for him, did not find him. I called him, he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak. Those watchmen of the walls, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. Now remember, this is a dream. It's unlikely this actually happened, that the watchman really did this to her. But certainly, this is how she is now feeling. Feeling defenseless, feeling defeated, feeling hurt. And you can see how things are just quickly spiraling out of control. She starts to panic, she dashes out into the night, she's exposed, she's vulnerable. Verse 9, how is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us. And now, even the chorus of voices that we've been seeing throughout the Song of Songs who've been praising their love now seem to mock her. Where is your superman now, O oh beautiful of women? Him, better than all the others, when he leaves you like this. Now, I've been calling this a dream. This is not a dream, is it? This is a nightmare. It's gone horribly wrong. It's awful. What happens to her, this tiff, this argument, this tit for tat, but now separated from her husband, mocked and all alone. This loss of intimacy and how quickly things can go so wrong when we make things about ourselves and look to ourselves and not to the other person. In marriage prep or wedding sermons, I often say to the bride and groom, two most important phrases to remember in your marriage, I'm sorry, I forgive you. I'm sorry, so that you don't just selfishly carry on as if everything is normal. Hello, my love, my beautiful one, look, I'm home, even though it is so late. But take responsibility for what's happened. I said I'd be home at a certain time, I wasn't, I'm sorry. No excuses, but the boss but the train, but my watch. No deflection. Oh, you're so beautiful. Have I ever told you that recently? No, just own it. I'm sorry. And I forgive you. Because then you don't have to selfishly play tit for tat. When your spouse wrongs you, as they will, it does hurt. And they should pay. But isn't that why Jesus Christ died? to pay for wrong, to pay for their wrong. And hasn't Jesus Christ already forgiven you far worse wrong that you have committed against him?
You don't need to make your spouse pay with a passive-aggressive comment or by letting a root of bitterness set in or keeping a record of wrongs. No, that is where the problems start. Did you notice that verse 3? I, 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 I. Selfishness, self-interest, self-focus, making everything about yourself. That is always the greatest obstacle to intimacy. And not just in the marriage relationship, but in all relationships, all human relationships. Take the teenage friendship at school between the good-looking girl and the less popular one and the good-looking girl hanging out with those who are less attractive than her so that all the attention stays on her. And the less popular one only really interested in the friendship with the good-looking one because of the kudos and the status that it gives her now hanging out with her. If that is the only reason for their friendship, then that's not going to bode well. Because at the heart of that relationship on both sides is self. And what I'm getting out of it and what's in it for me. Take, for example, Christian friendships at church. If you're only ever talking about yourself and never genuinely interested in what's going on in somebody else's life, that will not make for a very deep friendship. That will make for a superficial one at best. If you tend to be the more demanding one in the friendship, often trying to exert your own will in the situation, even if you're really wanting to do best for them, it will either push the person away it will make them feel beholden to you. Either way, the friendship will lack a genuine intimacy. You can even pour yourself into someone else's life, love them, care for them, pastor them. But if you are not able to open up yourself, if you're not willing to open yourself up to that person so they can speak into your life and care for you, again, that will not make for a very deep, genuine, long-lasting friendship. There might be very good reasons why you find it difficult to open up. You're self-protecting. People have hurt you in the past, but genuine friendships are two-way. And any sort of focus on self-protecting of self will lead to a loss of intimacy. And it is similar in our relationship with God. Although here we need to be careful, right? Because it's only us who are selfish. Never him. If we think we know better than God when it comes to our bodies and who to have sex with and when to have sex, even though God is the maker of our bodies and the inventor of sex and has given us the gift of marriage as the right context for sex, if we just selfishly crack on doing what we want when we want, contrary to what God lovingly tells us, well, don't be surprised if that leads to a loss of intimacy in your relationship with God. If we are selfish with our time, not spending that much of it listening to God's voice in Scripture, talking to Him in prayer, if we can't really bother to come to church in person now because we just like it at, at home, online, that's the only reason. It just, just, just works better for me at home. Again, don't be surprised if that leads to a loss of intimacy with God. Selfishness always separates. What's in it for me? I'm not getting what I want. This is not doing it for me. They better do what I say. My way is best. I'm going to stand on my rights. I'm going to make them pay. It is a nightmare to live like that. 
and it is a nightmare for your relationships. And you will just push people and push yourself further and further apart. A loss of intimacy. Secondly, though, in verses 10 of chapter 5 through to chapter 6, verse 3, we see a return to intimacy. Because suddenly, did you notice the mood changes? As we seem to flit from one dream scene to another, and we just had the question, how is your beloved better than others? Well, let me tell you, the woman says, you know, she now gives this magnificent description of her husband. We saw his description of her back in chapter 4. Now we get her description of him. Now, I'm not going to go through every body part here, but notice the focus on gold. Verse 11, his head is purest gold. And then glance down to verse 15, his legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. And so from head to toe, gold, precious, worthy. This is who my husband is to me. There's no one more precious than him. Gold in the tabernacle, God's dwelling place. To me, my husband is godlike. He is better, superior than all others. Notice also not just the gold, but the focus on his head. If you remember the man's description of the woman back in chapter 4, he went from head to breasts. But here the woman gives this um, full body scan of her husband. And while she is certainly attracted by his physical appearance, verse 14, his body is like polished ivory, decorated with lapis lazuli. That was one for Google. You might know what it is. I didn't. Lapis lazuli, a deep blue metamorphic rock used as a semi-precious stone that has been prized since antiquity for its intense color. You know that? No, this man has a physical intensity about him. His strong arms, verse 14. His strong legs, verse 15. Nevertheless, her focus is actually above his shoulders. His complexion, verse 10, radiant and ruddy. His head like gold. His hair wavy. His eyes also like doves. His cheeks sweet-smelling. His lips sweet-tasting. And she comes back to it in verse 16. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, this is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. So physicality, yes, this attracts her to him. But what really makes him so great and altogether lovely in, his, in her eyes, so special to her, are the words that come out of his mouth, the companionship that they enjoy. This is my friend, daughters of of Jerusalem. And the chorus of voices in verse 1 of chapter 6 stop their mocking. They offer to help. Which way did your beloved turn that we may look for him with you? And then suddenly, verse 2, he's back. And you're like thinking, where did, where did he come from? Have we just flitted again from another dream scene to another? Did she suddenly wake up from the dream and there he was, lying there all, all the time? We don't know. It's part of this poetic drama. But what we do know is this relational intimacy, physicality, emotion, it has returned. My beloved has gone down to his garden, verse 2. Remember what the garden was from chapter 5, verse 1? Her body. It is her. And then look at verse 3. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Which you might think, by the way, is just a repeat of what we've seen before. 
For those who've got your Bibles on you or maybe on your phones, you can do it. Just flip back to chapter 2, verse 16. Scroll back to there. In chapter 2, verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Now, flick forward to chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. Now, do you see the difference there? It's, it's different at the beginning, right? It's been swapped around. First time round, she puts herself first. My beloved is mine. This time round, she puts him first. I am my beloved's. Which perhaps is not significant, or perhaps it shows a vital shift in her heart from selfishness to selflessness. And she now looks at her husbands with eyes of love that overlook a multitude of sins. Not the eyes of my right, my way, I'm going to make you pay, but forgiving eyes. And eyes of gratitude and appreciation for all that he is to her. The promises they have made to each other to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for rich, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love, to cherish, till death us do part. Do you see this glorious return to intimacy? The ups and downs of married life. Oh, the complexities and conflicts of teenage relationships. Oh, the mess of all human relationships. We tread on each other's toes. We put our foot in it. We hurt people with our words and actions and others hurt us with similar words and actions. We let people down. Others let us down. We're sorry. We forgive. We grow through it all. We grow stronger through it all. Relationships are such hard work. But they are so worth it. So how are you going to restore intimacy within your marriage? Well, here is a reminder of what true love is. Not getting your own way, I, 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 I. But giving up your way for the sake of your spouse. Remember the promises you made to each other on your wedding day to love and to cherish for better, for worse till death us do part. Remember what made you fall in love with the other person, not just their physicality, but their personality. Give thanks to God for them. Show your appreciation to them. And can I suggest you don't focus merely on their faults. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Don't mishear me, part of growing together in married life is you will point out each other's faults, but there is a big difference, big difference, between pointing out faults every now and again when you see a pattern when they can't see it and focusing on their faults every day, pointing it out every time. Constant criticism with very little encouragement. Now, one of these will lead to a growing intimacy and one of them will rob you of it. And as I say, it's not just in married relationships, it's in all relationships. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Love does not dishonor other. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails.
Here is true love for all relationships, including Christian relationships within the church. That is the main central context for that quote from 1 Corinthians 13. And oh, if we would love each other more and more like this. Now, we we may not have made promises to each other like spouses do on their wedding day. But to belong to the body of Christ is to be so intimately connected with each, with each other that you and I and each other, we're going to be friends forever. I'm not sure how that makes you feel. But we might as well get used to loving each other like this because then we're doing so into eternity. True love that draws people together, unites, doesn't separate. And that is why finally, whether we are single, married, divorced or widowed, most importantly of all, we need to be seeking a deeper and deeper intimacy with Jesus Christ. The ultimate lover of our souls. Who is described, did you notice, in Revelation 1, in our New Testament reading, described from head to toe. His face like sun shining in all its brilliance, his hair white like wool, his eyes like blazing fire, his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. Jesus isn't just like God, he is God. He is God incarnate. He is the most precious human being of all. And when the Apostle John fell at his feet as though dead, before this vision of Jesus Christ, fully aware of his sin, his selfishness, and all that he's done to push and separate himself from God, what does Jesus say? Does he play tit for tat with John? Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, but I paid for your sin. All your sin. But now look, I'm alive forever and ever. There really is no one like Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us selflessly on the cross, who didn't think about himself but thought about others and loved them, loved you to the point of giving everything up for you, dying for all your sin, all your selfishness. Two chapters later in Revelation, Jesus Christ is standing at the door at the church in Laodicea standing and knocking here I am I stand at the door and knock and he is standing at the door of your heart right now do you hear him he's never late he's always on time do you hear him calling now come to him stop pushing him away let him love you with a selfless sacrificial love that will drive away all your fear your self-protection your selfishness and for those of us here who are followers of Jesus but you know we're just feeling a little bit distant from God We've lost a little bit of that intimacy with God. Jesus Christ is standing at the heart of your door right now. He's not gone anywhere. We're the selfish ones, not him. And he doesn't play tit for tat. He's right there, loving you, with you, calling you to him, absolutely committed to you, promised to love you for eternity, despite our ongoing sin and selfishness. Even though we don't deserve it, he continues to love us, forgive us, pour out his grace and mercy to us every single day. You can trust him with everything. So repent, come back to him. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me a return 
to intimacy. Well, let me pray that for us all now. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the realism that you give us in your Bible. Never idealistic, always realistic, because you know our hearts and you know our sin and you know our selfishness and you know the way we push other people away and ultimately we push you away, but you are so loving. You are the most precious, most perfect human being. You've shed it to us in your life, your death and resurrection. You're absolutely committed to humanity, absolutely committed to us and you stand at the door of our hearts knocking. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would move us to repent, to come back to you, to give our lives to you, to love you, to love others, just as you have first loved us. We ask for a deeper intimacy with you. In Jesus' name, amen.